Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is great to be with you again this morning, and it's um, even greater to know this potentially should be the last time, um, not knowing what the future holds, that I speak exclusively to a camera. So as of next week, we are hoping to start meeting together in person. So I'll get to see your eyes roll when I make references to St Kilda in our sermons. Um, so yeah, we look forward to that and looking forward to meeting um, Andrew and Lindy who have started to join us during this time. I haven't yet met in person uh, and I've noticed too that there's um, some others joined here this morning for the first time. So hopefully we get to meet you next week in person. We've been preaching our way through the book of 1 Samuel. Um, even though we've had chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, verse 1 read this morning, we're actually covering three chapters. We're covering from chapter 4, verse 1 through to 7, verse 1. Uh, so I would encourage you to have your Bibles open because we're covering a lot of material. Let's come before God in prayer and ask that he would speak to us through his word now. Our Lord and our God, you are king of absolutely everything. In you alone are our strength, our salvation, our power, our glory, our refuge, our shelter. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed himself to creation. We thank you that you have provided the means by which we can be saved. And we thank you that you continue to speak to your creation uh, through your written word, as enabled by your spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that your spirit would be at work in me and in all of us, that I might speak your truth, and that all of us might hear it and respond in faithful obedience to the God who has saved us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I reckon about 10 years ago, well, it seems to me at least, Australia was quite a spiritual country. By spiritual, I don't mean Christian. By spiritual, I mean we were a country where it was quite common for people to look for some sort of religious or spiritual experience. And in particular, there was a keen interest in discovering how to harness that higher power for our own personal benefit. Now, one, it's not as prevalent today as it was maybe 10 years ago or how, however long it was. It still exists in our culture today. You'll go to a restaurant and you'll see a shrine to a particular God there in that restaurant in their hope that it'll sort of bring luck and blessing and prosperity to that restaurant. Or you might see crystals arranged in a, in a particular way. Or in the sporting arena, you might hear of someone who's got a pair of lucky undies or lucky socks they wear every single week. When we look at these three chapters in 1 Samuel, we see both the Israelites and the Philistines placing their trust in a symbolic representation of their God. For the Israelites, it is in the Ark of the Covenant. And for the Philistines, it is their, their idol, their, their main model of their god, Dagon. But to where we've come to at this point in time, particularly for those who haven't been with us as we've gone through 1 Samuel, the setting of the scene we read about at the end of the book of Judges was in chapter 21, verse 25. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own sight. 
In other words, it was a selfish free-for-all. And as we've gone through these three chapters, we've seen something of the nature of the priesthood during that time, who was serving in the tabernacle in Shiloh. You've got Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were the priests serving there in the temple, who were described as worthless men who did not know the Lord, who were treating with contempt the means of grace that God had provided for an unholy people to dwell in the presence of a holy God. They were treating God with contempt. They were preventing people from worshipping in a right, honouring manner. And they were sleeping with the women who were serving within the tabernacle. Now, Eli, we've seen good sides and bad sides. And particularly his biggest pitfall was his complete inaction with regards to the behaviour of his sons whom he'd entrusted to serve as priests within the tabernacle. And in the end, Eli was confronted and rebuked by an unnamed prophet who told him that because Eli allowed this contempt for God and his provisions to be carried on inside the tabernacle, that he, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and all of his family line would be killed. So while we've seen a, a very poor picture of the nature of the priesthood during this time, there's also been an ongoing glimpse of hope. We've seen characters like Hannah, who dominated the first and, and second chapters as a very godly woman who, who poured out her heart before the Lord regarding her desire for a son. And as Eli promises that the thing that she had prayed would come to pass, she bore and gave birth to a son named Samuel. And Samuel is that other figure that we've seen throughout these chapters who is being described as growing in favor with God and with men, growing in the presence of the Lord. And in the last couple of verses of chapter 3, we saw these two key statements. It said in verses 20 to 21, And all Israel from Dan, Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet to the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So by the end of chapter 3, everyone knows that they have a prophet again. And everybody knows that the Lord's presence was manifest at Shiloh once again. And while the text doesn't make the explicit connection, I'm wondering if there's a degree of haughtiness of thinking, now God is on our side, let's act in a particular way. So as we work through these three chapters, our first section, we're going to look at God in his opposition to the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 4, God in his opposition to Dagon and the Philistines in chapter 5. In chapter 6, we're looking at appeasing the Lord. Then we're going to ask the question as we wrap up, how do we respond to the power and presence of the Lord. So firstly, God and his opposition to the Israelites. Chapter 4 begins with a scene of battle. It says that the Israelites went out to wage war against the Philistines. Now the text doesn't say who initiated it, but it seems to indicate the Israelites took the initiative to go out to the Philistines. We don't know if they were provoked or if there was a particular situation but the context seems to indicate to me 
the, a fair bit of their drive is coming from the fact that, well, now we've got a prophet. God's presence here. He's on our side. Now is as good as time as any to go out into battle and to take on our enemies. Now, it's not a new scene for the Israelites to be fighting against the Philistines. It's been going on for a couple of centuries, and you read about a number of those occasions in the, in the book of Judges. But if they were inclined to think, we're going out because God is in our favor, things didn't quite work out that way, did it? It says Israel was defeated and 4,000 soldiers were killed during that battle. Now, I'll just say as a quick footnote here that the Hebrew word used for thousand is also the same word that is used for a military squadron. So while I'm not going to keep going back to this, but wherever we see the word thousand in, in our text here, it could possibly mean a squadron. So um, just keep that in mind as well. So if they had been presuming that God was going to war with them and God was going to bring them victory, clearly they changed their mind come verse 3. When the people came to the camp, the elders of the Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from here to, to here from Shiloh, that it may come amongst us and save us from the power of our enemies. They didn't understand why they had been defeated, but they knew precisely by whom they had been defeated. They had not been defeated by the Philistines. They had been defeated in the presence of the Philistines by the Lord himself. Which makes the logic of their next step in strategy a little bit confusing. They've already acknowledged in the first loss, God was present there in the battle and he was fighting against them. So logic says the first thing they should be thinking is, why is the Lord fighting against us? What have we done to incite the Lord to wage war against us? Instead, what they do is they think, maybe we just need to bring the ark out. Maybe if we bring the ark out, that will twist his arm that he will fight and win our wars for us. Now, before you start to panic and think, oh, no, don't go moving the ark. Everyone's going to get struck dead. It was permitted to move the ark. There was prescribed ways of doing that. In the nature of the tabernacle, as they moved around, they placed it on poles, and, and we presume they transported it in that type of a way. But the idea of God being present in the battles against the Philistines and even fighting against the Israelites isn't a new concept. We've actually seen it happen a number of times already in the book of Judges that they recognize it was the Lord who fought against them. And every single occasion you see that happen in the book of Judges, it is because of the rebellion and the sin of the people. But on this occasion, there's no slight question of what have we done wrong. The right response should be look at themselves not bring out the ark as some sort of lucky trinket. But the people seem to think it was a great idea. As the ark comes into the camp, there's great cheers. It says the whole earth shook. The Philistines hear the cheer going on. They understand what's going on. But it's interesting. The Philistines 
are familiar with the God of Israel. They actually recall, say, this is the God who inflicted the, the plagues upon the Egyptians. But it doesn't discourage them in any way whatsoever. In fact, it's, they're encouraged, go and fight like men. Now, from an Israelite perspective, the outcome was a total disaster. We shouldn't be surprised that they lost. But they didn't just retreat back to their camp. It says everyone went back to their own home. It's like all over Red Rover. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were killed in battle. Probably no big surprise there. That was kind of prophesied that that would happen. 30,000 foot soldiers or 30 squadrons, whatever it is, were killed and the ark was taken. You certainly wouldn't say things went according to plan from an Israelite perspective. And still, there's no sign of repentance whatsoever. Now, we're not surprised that the Phinehas and Hophni were, were killed in battle. It was prophesied that they would die on exactly the same day as one of the consequences for their contempt for the offerings of God. But the ark was taken. The ark which symbolized God's presence with his people, gone. And gone into enemy territory. And we see the shock, the extent to which they had impact upon Eli. You look here in chapter 4, verse 18, as soon as the messenger mess mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He heard about the death of his own sons, didn't seem phased at all. But when he heard that the ark had been taken, fell off his seat, broke his neck because he was a big old fatty, it says, well, in the Steve's translation. So the ark has left the tabernacle in Shiloh and it never returns there ever again. It's actually quite possible in this battle that, that the, the tabernacle and Shiloh were destroyed during this time. But it wasn't just Eli who was shocked to hear the news. You also read that Phinehas had a wife who was pregnant with child. And the news brought on her pregnancy and her labor early. She gave birth to a son. And even though she died during childbirth, before she died, she says, this child will be called Ichabod, a name which meant no glory or the glory has gone. Speaking of the glory of God that dwelt amongst the people in connection with the ark and that ark had been taken and been gone away into enemy territory. Now you need to remember, at this point in history, People would attribute their military victories or defeats in light of their gods in connection with their nation. So for Israel, they're asking the question, is God even going to return? Have we, have we gone too far this time? Maybe even going so far to ask the question, has the Lord, has the God of Israel met his match? Has he been defeated by Dagon, the God of the Philistines. Well, certainly the Philistines see it this way, and they believed that the Lord had indeed been defeated by Dagon. So as we move to chapter 5, part 2, God in opposition to Dagon and the Philistines. 
So they bring the ark from their battle in Ebenezer over to Ashdod, one of the cities in the Philistine lands, into the temple of Dagon. The, the mindset behind this is that Dagon was the victor, the Lord God was the one who was defeated, so the Lord God must come in and serve the so-called victorious God of Dagon. But instead, the next morning, it is Dagon who is found face down before the ark. He's toppled over. And this so-called great conquering God needs people to stand him back up, to put him back on his feet. It's kind of like the language of Isaiah chapter 44, where it talks about the foolishness of idolatry. It says, you go and cut down a tree, half of it you used to make a fire to put your snags on, and the other half you make a God and worship and say, this God is going to save me. Now, whatever the Philistines thought caused it to topple, they didn't have any question about it the next day. It's a bit clearer in verses 4 and 5. When they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord again, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was still left to him, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod up until this day. It doesn't just say that his head and hands you know, broke off as it fell over. They had been cut off. You know the old expression about head, hands and heart, you know, kind of like expressions of your thinking, your feeling and your doing. Dagon, the physical expression of his thinking and doing nothing, cut off. The Lord, the God of Israel, had not been defeated the days before. It was Israel who had been defeated. And now the Lord, who is the victorious God, is in Philistine territory defeating Dagon in his very own temple. But it wasn't just what happened to Dagon and what happened inside the temple. It says, and the Lord's hand, bit of a stab there for poor old Dagon with his hands chopped off. The Lord's hand was heavy against Ashdod. They broke out in tumors. And as we've heard from the reading, there was a connection with mice. So people are saying potentially something like the bubonic plague, which was um, spread through the fleas from mice. And you end up with sort of uh, plagues as a result of that. Remember back in chapter 4, verse 8? The Philistines had remembered that the Lord had inflicted the Egypt with plagues. And now they realize the attack on Dagon and of all the people was the hand of the Lord at work. So what are you going to do? This was supposed to be a great sign of a conquering victory over the Lord to bring him into your your God's temple, yet your God is shattered in pieces, and now the hand of the Lord is in Philistine territory, wreaking havoc, showing his ultimate authority over everything. So they ask the lords, that is the, the rulers of the five key cities of the Philistines, what should we do about this? They've got an answer, it's not a particularly great one. They're like, just move it somewhere else. Let's let's move it on off to Gath. And we're not too surprised. 
There's panic in Gath as, as the ark arrives. The people there again are inflicted with plagues just like they were in Ashdod. And so they don't seek the advice of anyone else. They like, send it off to Ekron. You can't imagine the people of Ekron are like, yay, let's, let's bring the ark to our place. No, they're crying out, this thing is going to kill us. Their fears were justified. It says those who didn't die were inflicted with tumours. The chapter finishes in a way which is very similar to the words of Exodus chapter 2. In 1 Samuel 5, 12, it says, The cry of the city went up to heaven. In Exodus, the wording was, The cry of the rescues from, from slavery came up to God. God heard their pleas. Maybe they, even in their desperation, they called out to whoever this God of Israel is to, to take away his hand, to, to, to sort things out. They knew the ark had to go, but how? Clearly they understood that they had offended the God of Israel in some way and they wanted to restore and make up. How do you pay for that offense? That's chapter 6, part 3, appeasing the Lord. The lords of the Philistines aren't really the people to go to seek advice. They, they, their option was just to send it somewhere else. So they seek the priests and the diviners. And they give this advice. Don't send it back alone. They understand that this God has been offended. You need to make a payment. Send with it some form of guilt offering. Now, a guilt offering was a common practice in all sorts of religions. So don't think that they were doing like the guilt offering as prescribed in the book of Leviticus. That would have been uh, just some concept of a payment to a God for the offense done against them. And the payment was five golden tumors and five golden mice reflective of the tumors and the mice that had ravaged the land and the, the plagues upon the people from those five key cities in the from the Philistine territory. Gold, nice, probably not too many people want an ornamental tumor or, or mouse up on their mantelpiece at home. But we see that they're familiar, these, these priests and diviners, they're familiar with the God of Israel and his previous dealings in Egypt. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. It says, Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away after they departed? They understand, don't stand in the way of the Lord. Don't stand in the way of the God of the Israelites. But as a means of testing, it is these things that have been happening amongst them in connection with the ark, is this the God of the Israelites. They send the ark back in a very unusual and unorthodox way. They decide they're going to bring a new cart. They don't want any of the timbers being used to be defiled in any way by anything. But the means that they pull it along is by two milking cows, that is those who have newborn calves, who have never been yoked together to see if they would continue to, to take the ark back to its returned home. Now, according to nature, that's never going to happen. Just putting two cows that have never been yoked together and expect them to pull straight in the right direction is not going to happen. But these were two with calves that were leaving behind. And while they were lowing the whole way, it says they never turned left. They never went right. They went straight for Beth Shemesh. 
And as they arrive, the locals are celebrating. They see the ark returning and they rejoice. And a little detail I like that kind of rubs a bit of salt into the wound. It says, and they were out harvesting their wheat. Now, the interesting thing, in the Philistine territory where the ark had been, the mice had ravaged the land and their god Dagon was supposed to be a god of fertility and of vegetation. Yet in his very own territory, so to speak, the vegetation was suffering. And here, the Philistine lords that are following the ark see vegetation's going pretty good in the land of Israel. And as they come to Beth Shemesh, they take the, the wood from the cart to create a fire and use those two cows as an offering, a burnt offering before the Lord. The Levites who resided there placed the ark up onto the rock and the locals, all of them it says, offered burnt offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. The locals in Beth Shemesh understood that sacrifices were needed for them to dwell in the presence of the Lord. But maybe they hadn't fully grasp the extent, the gravity of God's holiness. It says, but some of them looked upon or looked in the ark of the Lord and the Lord struck 70 of them. Now it could mean that they looked inside to see if the, you know, the, the tablets with the law, if they were still in there or if they were curious, is there any more gold stuff inside there? But the language more lends towards that they, they looked upon sort of like with casual interest. They were fascinated. They tried it more like a, a tourist exhibition. If it was modern day, maybe they would have gone out and taken a few selfies with it. And because they treated with casual fascination rather than reverential awe, 70 of them were struck down. And their conclusion in verse 20 says, The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? They'd rightly concluded an unholy people cannot stand for a holy God. But then like the Philistines, their next first question wasn't, how can we be made right with God? It's like, who can we send this ark to? Now, as they put out the call to Kiriath-Jerim, I don't think there was anybody who was told, by the way, he's suddenly been struck dead here. The ghost Kiriath-Jerim, where people consecrate Eliezer to look after the ark, and there it remained. And as far as we know, it remained there until David brought it into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Although there is a possibility there was a reference uh, to Saul requesting the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 14, incidentally after a battle against the Philistines, probably not a good move. So potentially Eliezer said, no way, Josephine, we're not going through that one again, because uh, we're not actually read anywhere whether the ark was actually brought out at Saul's request. So wrapping up, the power and presence of God. It's a common theme throughout every one of these three chapters and more specifically the power of God expressed in judgment towards those who dishonor him and you can't even accuse God of playing favorites 
You see, God waged war against the Israelites. It's even possible that more Israelites died in this process than the Philistines did. And it's only right. They should, of all people, known the holiness of the Lord, had honoured him, the ones whom God had chosen to reveal himself to. Yet even when they recognised that the Lord had fought against them and defeated them, rather than thinking, what have we done wrong? How can we be made right with God? Their first instinct was, let's bring out the ark as a lucky trinket, because we need to win. We need to do what we want to do. And then you got the Philistines, who sought to make a mockery of the Lord, thinking that bringing the ark into the temple of their so-called god Dagon, who needed to be stood up when he toppled over, who, who presumed that he was the one who'd, who had secured victory against the Lord. Notice their first instinct wasn't any different. Their first instinct wasn't, how can we be made right with this almighty God? Their first instinct was, where can we send this thing? Where can we send it away? I think they're proud for they were proudly reluctant to send it back to Israel because this was supposed to be a sign of their great victory and a victory of their God over the Lord. You can't send it back. That's almost like a sign of, sign of defeat. But it gets a little bit embarrassing when this, this God whom you pre- presuming that you have your God has defeated is absolutely running amok in your God's home territory and even over the area, the vegetation that your God was supposed to be a supreme God of. The Philistines were forced to admit that what they trusted in was not enough. They knew that Dagon was not enough. They said, we've got to send this way. Dagon cannot deal, cannot make us right, cannot take away the judgment of this God. And given that every single thing that is created is created by God. He is the king of all of it. He's the rightful owner and ruler of all of it. And every single one of us will one day stand before him. So ask the question of those from Beth Shemesh. Who can stand before this God? Who can stand before the holy God? What is it that you're trusting in? The Philistines recognised that what they were trusting in that they thought was supreme wasn't enough. It couldn't take away the judgement of their God. What are you trusting in? That you've lived a good enough life? That maybe you've done some nice volunteer charity work? Maybe you've even gone to church on a regular basis? I think we can stand alongside the Philistines who even their their religious experts came to this conclusion. Look back to chapter 6, verse 5. When they said, this is how we think you should do something about the judgment of God, they said, so you must make images of your tumors and your images and your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps, perhaps, only perhaps, he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. So the best the experts could come up with was perhaps they had no confidence whatsoever 
no right to doubt any human plan to take away the judgment of God against our sin, which all of us are guilty of, is not worth trusting in. It's not enough. It'll come to nothing. You will not be able to stand before the Lord. You will not be able to stand before this holy God. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews speaks of the one and only way you can stand before the Lord. Reading from chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 11 to 14. It says, And every priest, that is the Old Testament, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Said so even the Old Testament priests, the sacrifices that they offered cannot take away sin. How much less anything else that you are trusting in by your good works, your church attendance or anything else like that. He said there is one way which has been provided for Jesus Christ by his one sacrifice has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There's the challenge. There is one way. There's only one means by which you can stand on, that you can stand before the Holy God. That is Jesus Christ crucified for your sins on your behalf. And the challenge is, stop trusting in your ways. Turn to him. Trust in what he has provided to reconcile you to God and to live for him as your king, your Lord placing your trust in him. But if you're already trusting in Jesus, I think the passage also has something to say to you. We have seen much about the power and and presence of God in these three chapters. Sure, it's been mostly displayed as his great power towards those who are hostile or who are opposed to God. But it's given us an insight into the, the gravity and the extent of his power. And remember, if you are a child of God, Christ dwells in you. God dwells in you. The same God you've seen express such great power by his presence is the same God dwelling within you who can work powerfully through even everyday people like you and I to walk and live the life that he's called you to live. To powerfully proclaim the good news of what God has done to deal with the problem of our sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. The same God who by his power is working in you to will and to work that which is pleasing in his sight. We don't want to make the mistake of people of Beth Shemesh thinking the presence of God or even the symbol of the presence of God is like a novelty just to be fascinated with. Embrace the awe of the incredible truth that if you are in Christ, Christ is in you, dwelling in you by the fullness of his spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul writes to the church in the Colossae. 
And just as you have powerfully received the Lord, so continue to powerfully walk in Him according to the power and strength that He supplies. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are powerful. You are mighty. You are the King of absolutely everything. You are powerful to judge. You are powerful to save. You are powerful to equip. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful blessing it is that we have the very presence of God dwelling within us. Like as they feared that the glory had departed from them, that your, your one and only Son has come into our world in the person of Jesus Christ, in the flesh, and we have seen and beheld his glory, the only begotten of the Father. Lord, we thank you that you never leave nor forsake your people. Lord, we thank you not only for the wonderful treasures that we have as children of God now, but Lord, we pray too that those treasures might be made manifest to those around us who do not yet know you, and that our confidence would not be in ourselves, but our confidence would be in the one who indwells us and who energizes us and who gives us the ability, the words to proclaim his almighty gospel. And in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.